The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hey, you gonna drink your alliance with me? Six years today, the alliance sent the brown coats running, pissing their pants. <laughs> you know, your coat is kind of a brownish color. It was on sale. You didn't toast. You know, I'm thinking you want them independents. And I'm thinking you weren't burdened with an overabundance of schooling. So why don't we just ignore each other till we go away? Independents were a bunch of cowardly, inbred piss pots. Should have been killed off of every world's spinning. Say that to my face. I said, you're a coward and a piss pot. Now what are you gonna do about it? Nothing. I just want you to face me so she could get behind you. Frogs are so cute. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 9th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright picking sides is what most people think politics is all about and most people want to be on the winning side not necessarily on the right side politically speaking these kinds of people are what i would call drunk on power blind drunk because in carelessly and ignorantly voting for the lesser of evils they are always supporting their own enemies and destroyers. Today, I intend to address various ideas expressed by those who have identified themselves as being either from the political polarity of left or right, and who see themselves as champions for freedom. Sadly, both sides share similar misguided, confused, and contradictory concepts regarding not only freedom, but the unavoidable and political necessity of left and right labels in the political and ideological arena. This is no mere issue of semantics, because in their confusion, they are contributing to our steady political drift leftward, away from freedom and not towards it. And that's exactly the point on which many of them would strongly disagree with me, which is exactly why we will once again demonstrate why the terms left and right are not and cannot be arbitrary. And if you don't know left from right, if you don't know left wing from right wing, then the world of politics will forever remain a mystery to you, a mystery that we shall attempt to solve right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on channel 292 shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Well, what better way to kick off our political polarity theme than with this fascinating feedback we received from Dave P., who just this past January 27th wrote, and I quote, 
Dear Just Right, You'd probably be surprised to find out you're actually on the true left. With your talk of supporting ordinary people and democracy and freedom and other values of the true left, and in opposing those who are trying to turn our country and world into some evil techno farm of big government dictatorship. Well, yeah, that would be a surprise. <laughs> if you'll access your history notes, you might recall that the original and still only valid definitions of left and right are that the right consists of those to the right of the king, whose primary philosophy was the completely authoritarian rule of an aristocratic class over the powerless peasants, and on the king's left were those peasants who wanted some democracy and power over their lives. And it's still true today. Your reference to not learning from history, quote-unquote, fits right in. If you'll then cast your mind back to the late 1800s, for example, it's pretty hard to avoid the fact that it was the capitalists exploiting the still pretty powerless workers, the Rockefellers, etc., all in their mining towns, etc., in the U.S., the British elite getting their wealth from the dark satanic mills of Oliver Twist and other Dickens novels fame, and etc., Nothing changed throughout the 20th century in terms of the true left and true right, but the peasants and workers, a.k.a. the populists, unionists, socialists, communists, etc., did become better organized and began to force some changes on the rightist elites. In terms of at least pretend democracies with some rights for the emerging working class, you know, better pay, better working conditions, some government programs such as health care and education, and other public services. In response to this increased influence of the true left and peasant worker class, the true right would-be rulers began to push back seriously, of course, protecting and consolidating their power, using their great wealth to buy important things like venal politicians and media owners, and began spreading the myths you propagate on your site, pretending the advances the workers were gaining were actually due to the largesse and generosity of the wonderful capitalists such as the kind of fall-off-your-chair laughable story of the hard-working squirrel having earned his hard wealth stolen by the lazy grasshoppers. Of course, any analogy arising from that scenario would be the squirrel stealing from the hard-working grasshoppers, empowered by corrupt right-wing bought-and-owned governments, and then using its power of the press to spread the outright reverse of the truth, as your Mr. Mansoor is doing. Anyway, it would be nice if folks like you could have your Saul come to Jesus, a.k.a. truth moment, and start fighting your and all of our real enemy, the capitalist berserkers who are taking over the world. As long as you and others like you continue to defend them and their quite outrageous rewritings of history, that struggle is that much longer with much more misery. Good luck, Dave P. End quote. Well, thanks for writing, Dave. And Dave offered some further links to explore, which I did, but I found it very interesting that he, like myself, understands that a correct conceptualization of left and right is critical to prevent making the struggle for freedom much longer and with more misery than necessary. And I agree. But I hope Dave has noticed that he is writing to a weekly show that begins each and every episode with the words, not right wing, just right which is a position not represented on any officially understood or accepted left and right political spectrum, quote-unquote. But that aside, Dave has described the left and right by citing the history of the right as being those who sit on the right of the king and the left as those who sit on the left side of the king, which we have both acknowledged and discussed several times on past broadcasts. I don't argue with that. 
But even in that description, we can already see the seeds of how the left and right have become to be defined as they are today, and in how they are being used in common political conversations. For example, Dave has defined the right as completely authoritarian, quote-unquote, and the left as, quote-unquote, some democracy in power. Well, the assumption that democracy, which is a form of collective power, is any less authoritarian than aristocratic or fascist authoritarianism is just that. It's an assumption, one that does not bear out in practice. Nor is it a given that democracy, quote-unquote, is compatible with freedom because, as we've seen over and over again, in a majority rule democracy, the quote-unquote majority can rule against freedom and usually does. Which, at this point in the discussion, already puts the group, the democracy, on the left by this historical description and leaves on the so-called right the authoritarians, who in today's terms would be the fascists, those who combine private interests with government policy. Either way, we're still left with two collectives, aren't we? Each occupying the opposite polarity. And as usual, what's missing in the context of the real-world polarity, like, you know, the one between freedom and tyranny, is a polarity that represents individualism, freedom, and capitalism, which would be the freedom polarity, and that is the right. There is no place for freedom on any political spectrum that places communism and socialism on the left and fascism on the right. That's simply a manufactured by the left representation leaving us faced with a choice between two different forms of tyranny. And this is a verifiable history that we have covered many times on past broadcasts. And after checking out some of the links Dave recommended, I came across this account of quote-unquote the roots of capitalism. And I quote, A short look at the roots of capitalism, which began with the invention of the alchemist stone to create gold from paper, a power closely monopolized by the rulers, who then used this political-economic system they called capitalism as clearly just another tool of oppression of the workers by the oligarchy. Capitalism is the intent to exploit others to create wealth, then use that money for more exploitation. Socialism is using wealth created by all for the benefit of all, end quote. Well, if ever there was an explicit formula for tyranny, that description of socialism is it. Whose wealth? Whose benefit? Who gets to expropriate the wealth from those who created it and earned it? And who gets to distribute it? And on what moral justification? Socialism and all left-wing tyrannies, communism and fascism alike, separate the creators of wealth from its beneficiaries. And remember, there is no such thing as collective ownership. That's an anti-concept. All ownership is private. Socialism is completely anti-freedom, as are all socialists and communists and fascists. Now, I won't even attempt to address the alchemist stone version of capitalism, unless it was intended to illustrate some form of monetary inflation, perhaps, creating gold from paper, which again is contrary to any and all principles of capitalism. It's not relevant. Dave cites, quote, for example, of a hardcore right-wing government, very clearly fascistic in every way, look no further than the United States, end quote. Well, I totally agree that the United States has become very clearly fascistic, as it has also been very socialistic, which is quite consistent. That's how it always worked. You start as socialism, you end as fascism. 
but both of these forms of collectivism are on the left. And at best, even if the label right-wing were applicable, the right-wing being referred to here would be the right-wing of the left body politic. The left and right wing that Dave has accurately described in historical terms, nevertheless, are reducible to tyranny of the aristocracy versus tyranny of the mob. Both are administered by a handful of oligarchs and dictators, by the way. You don't get away from that. Groups are led and ruled. They do not lead, but they follow. And both of these wings are not pro-freedom and are properly positioned on the left. But freedom is just right by any measure or definition. And the significance of left and right associations transcends politics. I mean, who was it that sat on the left side of God? Hint, his name also starts with the letter L. And consider the association of the left hand with the sinister and the right hand with the dexterous. Moreover, the literal definition of the word left merely denotes relative position, as in sitting to the left of the king or of anybody or anything, or it otherwise denotes the past tense of the word leave. The word right can be defined by what is correct. One can speak of doing the right thing without any reference to politics at all. I mean, you can't say the same for the left. You know, I always do what I know to be left for my kids. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? And finally, Never equate the word capitalist with capitalism. A capitalist is distinguished by virtue that he or she earns their money from property, whether real estate, money, physical goods, on which a return can be earned. And capitalists operate on the principle of profit, not of wages. And it comes with the associative risk of loss, which anti-capitalists never take into account. Oh no, that doesn't exist. And that's not a kind of risk that people who make wages have to take. Dave objects to, quote, the myths we propagate on our site pretending the advances the workers were gaining were actually due to the largesse and generosity of the wonderful capitalists, end quote. Well, we've never ever said such an outrageous thing. That's so silly I had to laugh at it when I read it. Show me a single example. The advances of the workers, any that were made, were due to advances in production and had nothing to do with the generosity of capitalists or the generosity of the consumer or the generosity of the customer. You know, I cannot count how many times on past broadcasts I have referred to capitalists as being among the greatest enemies of capitalism. Capitalism, by definition, is a free market, free of coercion, including the coercion of any government thief, or fraudster. When capitalists get together with the government, then the proper name to call that relationship is fascism. And fascism sits squarely on the left, not on the right, where it was arbitrarily placed by the left so as to obliterate the concepts of freedom and capitalism and to remove them from political and democratic consideration. The only distinction between the tyranny of communism and socialism, and the tyranny of fascism is the status of property under state control. Communism is based on the evil philosophy of state ownership and control of the means of production, whereas fascism is based on the evil philosophy simply of state control of all property, irrespective of ownership. Until it is realized that capitalism and fascism are exact opposites and therefore cannot possibly share the same political polarity, we will never have a political compass that works in accordance with reality.
On the popularly understood, or should I say misunderstood, political spectrum, freedom and capitalism have no place whatever, either on the left or right, however you define it. Now, let's contrast the view presented by Dave, who quite correctly acknowledges the importance of the left and right concepts, with that of those who think the terms left and right have become utterly irrelevant. Say someone like Ezra Levant of Rebel News, whose attempt to justify this position turned out to be a complete train wreck on his show of January 26th, where he asked, do the terms left and right make sense in politics anymore? And as much as I'm appreciative of and support the work of Ezra and Rebel News in their capacity as an alternative news outlet, I find myself in agreement with Dave that this confusion only serves to work against the struggle for freedom. Do the terms left and right make sense in politics anymore? I'll give you some weird examples. It's January 26th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. I'm conservative. Of course I am. I used to be a member of the Conservative Party. In the next election, I will most likely vote for the Conservative Party of Canada, Canada candidate. But I, I really don't use the word conservative as much these days as I used to because I don't think it fits perfectly to the pressing issues that face the world. And when I look around at the people who are often fighting the same fights I am, on the same side that I am, I notice many of them are not traditionally conservative. They, they would recoil at the word. Obviously, one of the examples I'm thinking about is the pandemic and the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates and other punishments like that. I've told you before my observation that people from all walks of life oppose those traditional liberals who would say my body, my choice when it came to abortion or, or drug use. They couldn't stomach now being ordered to take a government injection on pain of losing their job or access to public spaces. Labor union members who were appalled that their own union leadership sold them out to the bosses, accepting fundamental changes to the collective agreements without so much as a negotiation, let alone a strike. Green party types, natural health types, just shocked that their own green leader was now a backer of Big Pharma. I mean, this little scene taped right before the 2021 leaders' debates in our election was just a perfect summary of the uni party, am I right? We're all in this together. We've come so far in the fight against COVID, it's time to finish this pandemic for good. So get vaccinated. If you know someone who hasn't, talk to them. For our kids, for our communities, for our economy, it's how we get forward together. Vaccines are safe and effective for use. Vaccines are the best way for you to protect yourself, your family, and your community. So get vaccinated. Let's fight COVID-19 together. Pour vous protéger vous-même, pour protéger les plus fragiles d'entre nous, pour protéger l'ensemble de la population, le meilleur moyen connu demeure le vaccin. S'il vous plaît, soyez responsable, soyez solidaire, faites-vous vacciner. Merci. We all agree getting vaccinated is the way forward. We're all in agreement this is not a partisan issue, so please get vaccinated. We're united and it's time to get the shot. Vaccines save lives, they're how we're going to beat COVID, and it's time for everyone to do it. Get the shot. Get the shot. Um, so how gross was that to have all five party leaders short circuit any debate and just agree? No wonder they conspired to keep out Maxime Bernier, despite the party being at 5% in the polls, the, th the threshold for joining the debate. I think Pierre Polyev is better on those issues than Aaron O'Toole, and we are out of the crisis, at least for now, but we can never forget how complicit the so-called conservative parties in Canada were on the abridgment of our freedoms and privacy. The federal conservatives under O'Toole 
and even worse, provincial conservatives who were actually in power, including Jason Kenney in Alberta and Doug Ford in Ontario. So you see what I'm saying about the word conservative. But my point here is, isn't this what the left used to be against when it came to capitalism? Now they love big businesses and billionaires and multinational companies. How do they love George Soros, Bill Gates, Larry Fink of BlackRock? How do they love a big private jet secret of meeting in Davos, Switzerland? How did that happen? I remember the foreign policy narrative of the left when I was a student also. The CIA was the source of evil. It had toppled legitimate governments around the world and installed American client regimes. There was a time when the left hated the CIA. And now they're literally embedded in the media just to make sure they really follow the talking points of the deep state. And the left, they seem to love it. And it goes without saying that the left hated wars when I was a kid, especially wars in which the West, that is America, was a belligerent. But being anti-war was big. There was a perpetual protest group called Code Pink that was against American war. They were active when America really was in wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan. I'm sure you remember, though, Donald Trump really put going to war on pause during his presidency. He didn't start any new wars. He quickly ended the war against ISIS by beating them. And he brought U.S. troops home from around the world. Still, weirdly, the left kept up their anti-war protests, even though there really weren't any American wars. I think he's the most anti-war president since, what, Jim, Jimmy Carter, Wood, Woodrow Wilson? So the left was against war when there was no war. But I'm pretty sure there's a big war going on right now in Ukraine. And I haven't heard a peep from Code Pink about it, have you? Like I say, the left loves war now. Isn't that weird? The left is positively excited by war now. It's odd to me. The left used to be for free speech, much more in the 60s and 70s, but still in the in 90s they were. They loved Noam Chomsky, who was a kind of free speech absolutist who also had a scathing analysis of the corporate media in America. He made a documentary called Manufacturing Consent, which was a cult classic for every lefty I ever met in the 90s. Uh, Manufacturing Consent talked about many things, but one of them was how the concentration of big media in the hands of a few media conglomerates homogenized the discussion in America and to an extent the world and basically ruled out or ruled in different ideas. He was worried about news monopoly. But where are those lefties now when there are just as few companies dominating big tech? Facebook, which owns Instagram, Google, which owns YouTube, and Twitter. And until Elon Musk bought Twitter, they all manufactured consent together. About the pandemic for sure, but also about other things. And that wasn't enough. So there are now corporate and government-funded fact-checkers, which never check the facts of the establishment, only of the establishment's critics. Isn't that odd? And I think of these things because I'm fascinated by the reaction to our World Economic, videos, uh, our World Economic Forum videos from Davos. And I do see some thoughtful, independent leftists, true progressives, they found themselves agreeing with our videos, not just the BlackRock video, of course, but also the Pfizer video, scrumming Albert Bourla, the CEO, and the Greta Thunberg video, too. Here's liberal comedian and pundit Jimmy um, Dore. Take a listen to him for a minute. 
How come you never protest Saudi Arabia or Russia? You only protest Western energy. Why have you never criticized Vladimir Putin or OPEC? <laughs> yeah, I've never done that. Never, ever. Well, will you do so now? Will you condemn OPEC energy? That's a super legit question. Will you condemn OPEC energy? Well, how do, how do, so how does someone n- navigate that? She does now. Know OPEC what that is, it, is now. OPEC is in bed with the West. They're in bed with their the petrodollar. They're propping up the United States petrodollar, which allows us to commit genocides and wars all over the world. That is the a big, big pusher of climate change. The the military. That's a completely legitimate question, and she just ignores it. She can't answer a direct question about climate change. Not one. But Jimmy is unusual these days. He's rare. He's a principled leftist of the sort I remember when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. 99% of so-called progressives today are weirdly cheering for Pfizer, cheering for the war in Ukraine. Like for the war itself, forget about cheering for Ukrainians. They want the war, even though Ukrainians are, are the cannon fodder. They're cheering for the CIA. They're cheering for media concentration and censorship and cheering for all the things that the left said they hated when I was young. And that wasn't that long ago. It's strange, isn't it? I find myself sometimes more in league with principled leftists these days than I do with the so-called conservatives that want to swan about at Davos. I'm amazed that I have to go through this again. But there it goes. The reason why I hold conservative supporters in such contempt and disdain, because they refuse to accept reality. They refuse to hold their leader, their party, responsible and accountable for the decisions they've made on our behalf. Like signing on and committing us to the Sustainable Development Agenda, Agenda 2030, the same agenda that Pierre Polivier refuses to acknowledge or recognize. Mulroney signed it in 92. Harper made it law in this country, compelling our government to report our progress in achieving the goals of sustainable development to an unelected, unaccountable foreign entity. And then he committed us to it again under the latest incarnation, Agenda 2030, September 27th, 2015. A month later, Trudeau was elected, referring to our country as the first post-national state and a country that has no core identity. Everything you hate about Trudeau is because of Harper signing us and committing us to that agenda. Everything. Everything he's done since being in power since 2015, is in compliance with that agenda that Harper signed us on to. So if you're wondering why I hold you in contempt and with so much disdain, it's because you won't and you refuse to hold your party and your leader accountable for what they're responsible for. You won't do it. You refuse to do it.
All you care about is getting power and continually to destroy our nation. And you refuse to see it. You won't accept it. You won't acknowledge it because you can't. Because if you did, the PPC would get elected. That's why we're in this mess. That's why we're here. That's why I hold you in contempt. Well, we don't have to ask Mark Friesen what he thinks about Ezra Levant's continual support of the Conservative Party. That was the very principled Mark Friesen expressing something I've always felt since first entering Canadian politics back in the late 70s and early 80s. I learned very early on that Conservatives were never the opposition. They were the decoy for freedom-minded citizens and a hideout for progressives who preferred to remain politically anonymous. The Conservative Party of Canada and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario have always, during my entire political history, and for long before, been parties of the left. From managing the economy to introducing socialized and communist health care monopolies and a whole host of political and economic crimes to boot, the Conservative Party cannot ever be reformed. Just ask Preston Manning. Preston Manning was the leader of the now defunct Federal Reform Party until it too became swallowed up by the conservative left, thus ensuring that voters had no political option on the right. And today, the only Canadian federal party that can be considered to be on the right is Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada, the PPC. When I said earlier that Ezra Levant's presentation was a train wreck on the issue of left and right, here's what I mean. Ezra clearly and openly identified himself to be a conservative and then said that he expects to be voting for the federal conservatives in the next Canadian election. Then, after having used the very word himself, Ezra says, but I don't use the word conservative much anymore, as he correctly observed that they're just like all of the other parties in Parliament. Ezra acknowledges that the other parties conspired to keep PPC leader Maxime Bernier out of the leaders' debates, despite Bernier's having been qualified to be there. And he says that having Pierre Polyev at the helm of the federal conservatives has, quote, kept us out of the crisis for now, end quote, although by us, I think he means conservatives, because I see no effort on the part of Polyev to avert any crisis for us Canadians, other than his own political crisis. And then, to pile the contradictions on top of contradictions, Ezra says that we should never forget how complicit the Conservatives of Canada were on the abridgment of our freedoms. Just after having announced that he nevertheless plans to vote for the party that has done this. Is that what he means by never forgetting? Sounds like he forgot before he even finished the sentence. And moreover, it's not that the conservatives were, in the past tense, abridging our freedoms. They have always done so. Always, always, always. Throughout my entire political life, spanning half a century, and long before that, and still to this day. Then comes the most fascinating part of Ezra's presentation. He goes on to question what he sees as an inconsistency in the left, citing what appears to be changes in the left's view on various issues, when in fact, the left has remained entirely consistent in every single example Ezra cited. That was very revealing and explains so much 
for those of us who are having a hard time trying to figure out the logic behind conservative thinking. The consistency in the left, which apparently most conservatives cannot fathom, is that the left is a death cult with a deep hatred of freedom and capitalism, and this is no different today than it was decades ago. All of the issues and policies associated with the left by Ezra are fully consistent with that unchanging agenda. Why was the left supposedly opposed to war in the past? Well, because, whether right or wrong, the left perceived those wars to be fought for freedom, and that's what they really opposed, not the war. Today we see the left applaud war because today's wars are correctly perceived to be fought against freedom, which remains the left's consistent and unwavering objective. The left does not care about war one way or the other, per se. If the war promotes their cause and objectives, then the left is for war. If the war promotes or defends freedom and liberty, then the left is against it. The left hated big business and corporations in the past because, again, rightly or wrongly, these enterprises were considered and perceived to be pro-capitalist and pro-freedom and pro-free trade. Today, the left loves the George Soros brand of big business and corporations because these businesses and corporations are against individual freedom and capitalism and opposed to free trade. And the left was never in favor of free speech, except for the left, which is why today the same left supports the censorship of the right, which leaves the free speech door open to the left. (laughs) Nothing has changed, Ezra. It's the same agenda, one identified by a consistent principle of state control and collectivism on which it is based. As Ayn Rand so clearly explained, the left represents the anti-industrial revolution on principle. So you can imagine just how much I found myself cringing when Ezra concluded, quote, I find myself sometimes more in league with principled leftists these days than I do with the so-called conservatives, end quote. Well, what Ezra is really coming to discover is that conservatives are on the left, as has long been the case. But in so doing, he left an amazing vacuum in his argument, one that I have only now observed is typical of most conservatives who broach this subject. Although Ezra began his presentation with the question, do the terms left and right make sense in politics anymore, he never answered it. Nor did he even once use the term right, quote-unquote, after he posed the question. He substituted the concept of right with the non-concept of conservative, which is an undefinable web of contradictions. And it's also, why, by the way, why we always used to call conservatives contradictories. And you know what? Most conservatives do this because they have been epistemologically disarmed by the left. They instinctively recoil from being labeled right, which is why they always find themselves surrounded by the left. And in so doing, they have answered their own question indirectly. Do the terms left and right make sense in politics anymore? You bet they do. The answer is yes. It's the people on the left who don't make sense in politics anymore, (laughs) not the terms themselves. Which now brings us from the frying pan into the fire. Coming up next is that principled left-winger who Ezra referenced, namely Jimmy Dore, who on his own February 1st show interviewed another person utterly confused about left and right and about government in general. And that is none other than Michael Malice, a self-proclaimed anarchist who, despite adopting this particular 
contradictory view has otherwise been a true voice of reason on just about any of the other topics he discusses. I am a big fan of Michael Malice, which is why it pains me so much to hear him so unable to even define what anarchy is. It's another epistemological train wreck leading to the same kinds of contradictions that should be raising red flags on the concept of anarchy entirely. We have a special guest with us today, Michael Malice. So what do you mean by red-pilled? And then tell me what you mean by an anarchist. Uh, anarchism is simply the premise that you do not speak for me and everything else is application. As for red-pilling, red-pilling is the belief that that which is presented as fact by the corporate press is in reality a carefully constructed narrative designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power. So you would call yourself an anarchist. Yeah. I still don't know really what that is. So anarchism is the political philosophy or ideology that is based on the view that political authority is inherently illegitimate, right? It's not Republican versus Democrats. They are literally, I'm using literally, literally gangsters with two rival gangs, and they have their turf warfare. It's the, the level of complete inherent corruption that's baked into the cake, which I think, and it's something from an anarchist perspective, is not resolvable. Uh, that I think that is inherent to the nature of government. How, how, do you, uh, how do you organize a society of anarchists? Societies are organized peacefully. You organize them voluntarily. Uh, we're having an anarchist relationship right now. Even though this is your show, you can run it however you want. The biggest threat, something that you and I completely agree on, is the uh, interface between corporate America and the government wherein every single regulation, for the most part, is written by people in giant corporations to ensure that there's no competition. And so, do people call you a right-winger because of the... I'll just stop it there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm comfortable with any label that people want to ascribe to me. You know that. People do that, too. They try to discredit me by saying, you know... Oh, Jimmy, half his audience is right-wingers. That's not an insult. That's a compliment that my message has brought appeal. That's thinking you have right-wing listeners? Because I don't vote for Democrats. So Democrats want to smear right. me and discredit me, and then but idiots in comedy who know nothing. There's only two Jimmy. You that, pick one. But, that's but, it. Now you can you have... You know what's interesting? Yeah. The question for them isn't, are you correct or incorrect right. in general that's or right. given issue? It's like, what to. team is he on? They want to have this binary filter... To be like, all I need to know is, is he on my team or on that team? And as soon as someone is a progressive or a right winger, I don't need to hear another word that they have to say because now I know that they're wrong. And as if the idea that someone is like on the wrong team and they can't be an oncologist, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, you're a Hillary voter. I can't trust anything you have to say about my cancer. You don't know how many genders there are. It's, but that is really their thinking. Do you ever uh, vote? No, and I, I don't believe in voting. And why don't you vote? And why don't you believe in voting? I don't think anyone has the capacity or right to represent me. And it's nonsensical that someone will speak for me in terms of abortion and tax policy and foreign policy and education and health care. I mean, imagine <laughs> if you sat down, went to an office, and you have to pick someone who's going to be your lawyer and your accountant and your chef and your chauffeur. It would be crazy. But yet when it comes to politics, we're forced to. And the other thing about that, which is crazy, is, you know, I have this line in my book on North Korea that having one person in charge, one choice is dictator dictatorial, but having two choices is freedom. 
we are subjected to a year-long process by which the choices for which people have to choose for their presidential candidate are winnowed down until you have two options. There's no other system, uh, television, food, books, anything, lawyers, doctors, uh, accountants, where you are forced to have two and only two choices, neither of which ever are, to my memory in our lifetime, are good people. So what do you say, uh, there's a famous saying, I'm going to butcher it, but the gist of it is, if you're not willing to get informed and participate in politics, that the price you pay for that is that you're ruled by your lessers. Well, that's that's the price we're paying it regardless, number one. And second, I can't... I don't think that once every four, four years flicking a switch in secret is somehow more of an accomplishment than writing books and talking about politics constantly, that I'm somehow not part of the process. No, I, no I, 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 I'm not saying you're not part of the process. I'm just trying to um, uh, talk about the, the idea of not voting. So, but no, Just I'm, one more thing. I don't begrudge anyone else. If they want to go vote knock yourself out i'm not don't look down on them or anything like that i'm just saying for me this is something that i do not think is a good use of time moon base coming up on our starboard side what is this place Kreitz? according to the ident it's a United America Scientific Research Station. United America? Who's that? Well, at the end of the 23rd century, America attempted to bring peace to the world by asking every nation on Earth to sign a peace treaty. Any nation that refused, they invaded. <laughs> now, a war ensued that was called the War Against War. Those countries who went to war because they were so against war, they were prepared to go to war to fight in a war against war, <laughs> called themselves United America. Well, why would these United America Johnnies want to build a research station way out here? By the looks of their manifest, they're loaded with tech. Maybe we can finally fix Starbug's thruster. I'm sick of always having to turn left. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And we really do have to fix that thruster on our political spectrum, don't we? <laughs> Says Michael Malice. Anarchism is simply the premise that you do not speak for me and everything else is application. Well, that's a complete non sequitur. It is meaningless. Anarchism is not a premise, and whatever application means is anybody's guess. To which Jimmy Dore understandably responded, I still don't know what anarchism is, and to which Michael replies, Anarchism is the political philosophy or ideology based on the view that political authority is inherently illegitimate. So, anarchy is not just a premise. In his second response, anarchism is now a quote-unquote political philosophy. That if, as Michael asserts, political authority is illegitimate, then so is any political philosophy of anarchy, which, as a political philosophy, could only be exercised through political authority. Otherwise, there would be nothing political about it. See the contradiction? And then on the issue of political polarity, which is always a necessary binary in politics, Michael says, the question for them is not are you correct or incorrect on a given issue. They want to have this binary filter to know, is he on my team or on their team? 
So, does that mean that Michael considers the binary filter to be something politically illegitimate? Not at all. Michael is looking at the wrong binary, even after having identified the correct one in the same sentence. Are you correct or incorrect on a given issue? That's the binary, Michael. There is no binary involved at all if you're comparing two different political parties who share the same political principles. That's not a binary. That's a singularity. And it's on the left. And on the question of how do you organize anarchy, Michael responded peacefully, voluntarily. We're having an anarchistic relationship right now. No, you're not, Michael. The relationship to which you refer is based on mutual consent, which is the political application of individual freedom. Now, of all the questions never asked of anarchists is this one. Who or how do you make laws? You'll recall that on the last show where we discussed anarchy, we cited Tom Burnham's Dictionary of Misinformation, which defined anarchy as a philosophy that assumes a system in which the individual is free and living in peace. But anarchy is not that system. The system that is assumed is called freedom, or capitalism. Hence, the constant necessity of various anarchists, such as Murray Rothbard, whom I met personally, to describe themselves as anarcho-capitalists. And that term itself could fill a book with the inherent contradictions that it encompasses. What do anarchists do when two perfectly peaceful and law-abiding people find themselves in a conflict that has nothing to do with good versus evil or left versus right? Say, a property dispute. Maybe an accident in which one caused damage or injury to the other. Perhaps a divorce settlement. As Ayn Rand herself observed, and Michael is a big fan of Ayn Rand, she condemned anarchy and libertarianism both and pointed out that government is necessary not only to arbitrate disputes between good people and evil people, but between good and good people. The government is the referee and the final authority in arbitrating disputes, without which we'd really discover what anarchy is about. In fact, one could easily say that we exist today in a state of anarchy, given the lawlessness and subjectivity of the people now occupying power. Or in other words, an absence of government in the presence of rule. If, as Michael asserted to Jimmy Dore, we're having an anarchistic relationship right now, then the two of them could have had that kind of anarchistic relationship within any totalitarian regime such as the one we're in now. I mean, for that matter, they could have been sitting in a jail cell and had that same anarchistic relationship. When I used to talk to various anarchists about how disputes would be peacefully and justly resolved in a stateless society, their answer was always something along the lines of how each person in a dispute would contract with some kind of competing agencies of force, and those agencies would settle the dispute. And if I pointed out the obvious flaws and contradictions in this absurd solution, well, if looks could kill, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. I kid you not, the very idea of good government is a concept that anarchists not only hate, they reject it. And they certainly don't know how to define such a government. Michael says, I don't believe in voting because no one has the capacity or right to represent me in abortion, tax policy, foreign policy, etc., but that's not what democratic representation is. It is not possible for any politician or representative to represent a constituency on abortion if that constituency is, say, split 50-50 on the issue. 
How can you possibly represent both sides of any issue that is binary? The answer is that you cannot and you should not. The only thing a politician can represent that would apply equally to every individual in his jurisdiction is the protection of life, liberty, and property for each individual. Or in other words, ensure that individual freedom is the goal and that consent is the operative political principle. And more to the point, any representative of one person cannot possibly do things that the person being represented cannot do. Representatives don't accrue any additional rights or powers that those they represent do not already have. Otherwise, the term representative becomes meaningless. No individual has the power or right to declare or wage war, therefore neither does his representative. Since no individual has any right to deprive another individual of their right to own, say, guns, then no representative has any such power or authority either. Since no individual has the right to force his or her particular preferences on another, neither do representative politicians. In other words, a true quote-unquote representative has no power or authority that the individual being represented doesn't already possess. Basically, a representative doesn't have a hell of a lot to do other than to protect those he represents from the encroachment of leftist governments. And most anarchists misguidedly believe that corruption is inherent in the nature of government. They are not alone in this belief, even though it is patently false. Corrupt governments do exist, of course, but this is not inherent in their nature. Government, the state, is merely a collective gun, and to borrow an oft-used phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And the same holds true for government. Governments don't kill people, people kill people. And as Isabel Patterson observed in her book, The God of the Machine, government is not force. Force is what is governed. And corruption, to the extent that exists, is inherent in people, not in inanimate objects or organizations that people may from time to time create. And corrupt people don't just disappear because you take away their guns. They still exist in our midst and will continue their corrupt ways while the only people thus left unarmed in the absence of government are the good people who are not corrupt. Now here's Dennis Prager speaking way back on December 14, 2015. One of the most important differences between the left and the right is how each regards the role and the size of the government. The left believes that the state should be the most powerful force in society. Among many other things, the government should be in control of educating every child, should provide all health care, and should regulate often to the minutest detail how businesses conduct their business. In Germany, for instance, the government legislates the time of day stores have to close. In short, there should ideally be no power that competes with government. Not parents, not businesses, not private schools, not religious institutions, not even the individual human conscience. Conservatives, on the other hand, believe the government's role in society should be limited to absolute necessities, such as national defense, and to being the resource of last resort to help citizens who cannot be helped by family, by community, or by religious and secular charities. Conservatives understand that as governments grow in size and power, 
the following will inevitably happen. One, there will be ever-increasing amounts of corruption. Power and money breed corruption. People in government will sell government influence for personal and political gain, and people outside government will seek to buy influence and favors. In Africa and Latin America, government corruption has been the single biggest factor holding nations back from progressing. Two, individual liberty will decline. With a few exceptions, such as an unrestricted right to abortion, individual liberty is less important to the left than to the right. This is neither an opinion nor a criticism. It is simple logic. The more control the government has over people's lives, the less liberty people have. Three, countries with ever-expanding governments will either reduce the size of their government or eventually collapse economically. Every welfare state ultimately becomes a Ponzi scheme, relying on new payers to pay previous payers. And when it runs out of the new payers, the scheme collapses. All the welfare states of the world, including wealthy European countries, are already experiencing this problem to varying degrees. Four, in order to pay for an ever-expanding government, taxes are constantly increased. But at a given level of taxation, the society's wealth producers will either stop working, work less, hire fewer people, or move their business out of the state or out of the country. Five, big government produces big deficits and ever-increasing and ultimately unsustainable debt. This too is only logical. The more money the state hands out, the more money people will demand from the state. No recipient of free money has ever said, thank you, I have enough. Unless big governments get smaller, they will all eventually collapse under their own weight with terrible consequences socially as well as economically. Six, the bigger the government, the greater the opportunities for doing great evil. The 20th century was the most murderous century in recorded history. And who did all this killing? Big governments. Evil individuals without power can do only so much harm. But when evil individuals take control of a big government, the amount of harm they can do is essentially unlimited. The right fears big government. The left fears big business. But Coca-Cola can't break into your house or confiscate your wealth. Only big government can do that. As irresponsible as any big business has ever been, it is only big government that can build concentration camps and commit genocide. Seven. Big government eats away at the moral character of a nation. People no longer take care of other people. After all, they know the government will do that. That's why Americans give far more of their money and volunteer far more of their time to charity than do Europeans at the same economic level. Without the belief in an ever-expanding government, there is no left. Without a belief in limited government, there is no right. I'm Dennis Prager.
we got our elections coming up too. We got the Canadian elections. You guys, huh? you guys gonna vote? Huh? Some of you, mm. Here's the thing, Canadians aren't like Americans where we just vote for one party, okay? Most Canadians vote liberal and conservative or liberal and NDP. They flip flop back and forth, right? You don't go from NDP to conservative unless you won the lottery or conservative to NDP unless you were smoking crack for the last four years. Like, like you don't f go that far, right? Here's the thing, economically, I'm center right. Do you guys know what center right is? Okay, it's like, like I'll help the poor, but I won't respect them. <laughs> huh? <laughs> like, here's your money, stupid. <laughs> and people are like, what, you might vote conservative? I'm like, I might. And they're like, well, yeah, but they're racist. I'm like, I'll take a little bit of racism if I could save some taxes and buy myself a pool. Again, note how Dennis Prager, after introducing how the left likes to control everything, begins addressing the political polarity as conservatives, on the other hand. <laughs> However, at least he eventually did get around to actually using the term right. So as we can see, the terms left and right have evolved to represent ideas, not people. And these meanings and definitions are not and can never be arbitrary if these labels are to be applicable to reality. The science of epistemology does not allow for subjectivism and fuzzy associative approximations. So I would put it back to our feedback writer, Dave P., that no one who discusses left and right in terms of ideology would ever suggest that the left is the side on the side of freedom. And I learned all of this the hard way. Like Ezra and so many others, upon realizing that the traditionally defined left and right labels were dysfunctional in reality, my particular error was to believe that the labels of left and right could be avoided altogether. And we used to say, look neither left nor right, but up in my early political days, spelled D-A-Z-E, <laughs> not realizing how confusing this was to voters who were already as confused as Dave and Ezra about left and right. The last thing anyone needed was a third polarity in a world where polarity always means two. So, no one in their right mind would ever do anything proposed and endorsed by the left. Because there is no left mind. That is a mind that has been abandoned because its owner left. Past tense of leave, if you recall. <laughs> yeah, I know, that was a low blow. But come to think of it, the time has arrived for us to leave as well. Which means that between now and next week, yikes, we will have left you. But we'll be right back one week from today when you are cordially invited to join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be. And I recall when I was a cadet in Potsdam, and one of my instructors, Colonel Schleswig, oh, a fine officer, gentleman. He was later executed by Hitler. After all, nobody's perfect. Authority is a dangerous thing in the hands of fools. And you know, I thought that remark was so brilliant. I had my mother, God rest her soul, embroider it on a pillow for me. What mothers wouldn't do for their children. <laughs>